0: And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6. If you forgot your Bibles this morning, there's one in the seat right in front of where you're sitting. It's a black hardbound book. Feel free to grab that. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take it home if you want it. We're on page 49 in there, Exodus chapter 6. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus verse by verse, chapter by chapter, working through seeing the glory and the majesty and the power of the Lord. I love working through books. If you've been around uh, for more than a couple years, you'll know that that's my preferred method of preaching. I like to work through books. We've done this uh, several times over the last many years, and this is no exception, but one of the reasons I love preaching through books is it gives us the whole counsel of God. It gives us the whole picture It's not just a verse or two here or there. It's really the beginning of this account all the way through the end. And and one of the beautiful things that I love about preaching through, especially Old Testament books, is we're reminded of the goodness of the Lord in this moment. So we're seeing the majesty and power of the Lord in the book of Exodus working out through the people of Israel. But we're also, and again, this is what I love about the Old Testament, we're getting a glimpse of who Jesus is going to be. The Old Testament paints a picture for us, one one brush stroke at a time of exactly who Jesus is going to be. So we've seen already several examples in the book of Exodus that look ahead to Christ. Last week was no exception. So I'm going to read verses 6 and 8 of Exodus chapter 6 very quickly. And I want to just kind of point out again what we saw last week that will kind of propel us into what we're going to look at this morning. So Exodus 6 Beginning in verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, this is the Lord speaking, I am the Lord. Now there's a series of I will statements. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Those I will statements point to the promises of the Lord. And here's what I loved about last week, and, and I just kind of thought this week, this may at this point be my favorite part of the book of Exodus so far, because those three verses, Exodus chapter 6, 6, 7, and 8, point to what the Lord did for the people of Israel. Right, points to how he liberated them and redeemed them and adopted them and gave them possession of the land. We talked about that last week. That's what he did for the people of Israel then. But the beautiful part of this story is that's exactly what Christ does for us still today through salvation. And so what was relevant 3,500 years ago to the people of Israel is still relevant to us today through Christ. He liberates us, he redeems us, he adopts us, he gives us possession of the land and heaven with him one day in glory. It's a beautiful picture. It's a reminder that this isn't some random book. These aren't random stories. There is a thread that's tied together from the beginning to the end of Christ. And I hope you see that as we work through that again this morning, as we've seen so far over the last several weeks. So let's kind of jump right in this morning. Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. Now we're coming up on the genealogy here of Moses and Aaron. And I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to read the first verse of the genealogy and the last. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy for two very important reasons. Reason number one, most people don't know these people anyway, right? And so it's hard for us to kind of imagine who they were. And sometimes we get bogged down in the names. That's reason number one. Reason number two, maybe more importantly, is I have no idea how to pronounce these names. (laughs) So it's just being dead level honest with you, just being transparent. I could pretend like I know and you could walk out of here going, man, that guy knows the Bible. No, I'm just making it up because I, I don't have any real idea how to pronounce these names. So I'm going to do the first verse and the last verse. I'm going to time them together because they are important. Then we're going to jump into verse 26. So Exodus 6:14. these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben. We know Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. Now listen, Moses is writing this. He starts here because Reuben is connected to Jacob. We know the story of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. We know the story began. We've started this process. When we talked about Exodus. We started this process really in the beginning parts of Genesis. Genesis 12 especially with the promise to Abraham. And so Moses is connecting here this promise that he's already connected. He's connecting now with a genealogy all the way back to Abraham. That's how the genealogy begins. There are lots of people through. And then verse 25, Elazar, Aaron's son, took as a wife one of his daughters, Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. And so he takes it all the way from Reuben and Abraham all the way to Aaron. And so he's making this connection. Listen, the God that has made the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob is the same God now that is promised to be with all of the descendants all the way up to Aaron, all the way up to Moses just a connection point for us. It's reminding us of God's plan, of God's promises from the beginning. Now look at verse 26 of Exodus chapter 6. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses And this Aaron, verse 28, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Right. Moses is still concerned. He's unsure. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. That's important. We're going to come back to it in a minute. out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Verse five, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's stop there for just a minute. Let's kind of draw a point out. Remember, the God, God here is, is making his name known He's demonstrating his power. He wants the people of Egypt and especially the Pharaoh to understand exactly who he is. So here's the first truth I want you to get, number one this morning. The true God demonstrates his power. And I contrast that true God with the false gods of Egypt. We're going to come back to that in just a minute and explain that. But the true God is going to demonstrate his power. Now Moses at this point is still uncertain. Right? We've been walking through these verses for the last many weeks, and we know that Moses is uncertain. He's not sure he can do it. He's worried about his speech. He's kind of gotten into this argument with the Lord about, can I do it, Lord? I'm not sure what to say. Nobody's going to listen to me. They're not going to believe me. I'm not a good speaker. Moses is unsure of his abilities. Moses is unsure of his own strength. Here's the problem. Now, I want you to listen to this. It's never really been about Moses. Moses. Never really been about Moses. It's always been about the Lord. Now here's what we do today, right now. We say, Lord, I just don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can share my faith at work with this person. I just don't know. I don't, I don't know if I've got time, Lord, to, to do this or to act this way. Or, Lord, I feel like you've called me to say this. I'm not sure I can do it. I don't know if I have the right words. I don't know if I'm eloquent enough. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? On and on, we kind of argue back and forth with God. We need to be reminded it's never really been about us either. It's always been about the Lord. And so if he's calling you to do something, he's going to equip you to accomplish it. Did you know that? he calls you to go or to say or to be or whatever that looks like for you, God is going to walk there with you to demonstrate exactly who he is so you can see and understand his power. Here's what one writer said, the prophet is not responsible for the way the people respond to the message, but only for getting the message right. That's very good. We worry. Can I really lead this person to Christ? Can I really share properly? Can I really explain? It's really not about what you do. It's about trusting the Lord. It's about allowing him to work in those moments. And so Moses is fearful. He's not certain. He's not good. He's not smart. He can't speak. And he's concerned. And so God reminds him in Exodus 7, chapter 1, of something very important. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now remember, let's, let's make the contrast very clear here. Moses is just a shepherd, right? He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. We know the story. Killed the Egyptian, tried to hide it, fled into the wilderness. For 40 years now, he's been tending sheep. And so he's just kind of this nobody. Uh, this shepherd that most people have forgotten. He's lived out in the wilderness for 40 years. He's walking into the throne room here, and at least from an earthly standpoint, he's standing before the most powerful man on the planet, the Pharaoh. So there's this... Massive contrast here between the Pharaoh, the king, the ruler with all power and lowly little Moses who doesn't speak very well, who's scared to death, who's been living in the wilderness for 40 years. The contrast could not be greater, but the Lord says something to Moses that matters. Moses, I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. Now remember, the Pharaoh saw himself as Deity. It was more than just a king, more than just a ruler. Pharaohs were seen as gods. They believed they had been divinely appointed for that role and for that place of leadership. The people of Egypt saw and understood that. And so this wasn't just a man talking to Moses. This was God. And so when the Lord speaks to Moses and said, listen, I've made you a god to Pharaoh. He's making very clear the position here. Moses, you may be nothing in the eyes of Pharaoh, but in my eyes, because I've given you the strength, I've elevated you to this place of God over Pharaoh. One scholar said it like this. In Egyptian history, the Pharaoh was considered to be divine. So by calling Moses God, Yahweh is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It's not the king of Egypt who is God. Rather, it's the shepherd The leader of slaves who is God. God defeats Pharaoh in a manner that leaves no doubt as to the true nature and source of his power. He controls the elements, the bugs, the livestock, the fire from heaven, and the water of the sea. Even has authority over life and death. Right now, Moses is going to do what the Lord is going to eventually do through Christ. Moses is going to stand in this place of lordship over Pharaoh. Remember, when Jesus comes, he's going to fulfill this. The things that Moses couldn't completely do, couldn't completely fulfill the mistakes that he made, Jesus is going to come and fulfill those. Jesus is going to come and live the perfect life. Jesus is going to lead his people into the promised land. Jesus is going to be the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And so Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, right? So Moses is kind of playing this part, standing in leadership over Pharaoh so the Lord can make it very clear to him he has power, right? So point number one, the true God is going to demonstrate his power. Pharaoh's going to have no doubt when all this is said and done, exactly who the Lord is. And he's going to begin to demonstrate it now in verse 8. So let's look at that together. Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before the Pharaoh that it may become a serpent or a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before the Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they, become, they became serpents. But, this is important, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Right. So the Lord is beginning to demonstrate his power. He's beginning to demonstrate his majesty. He's placed Moses as a god over Pharaoh to demonstrate divinity there. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Number two, the snake is swallowed this is very interesting because for us this is kind of a strange twist of events it may feel like we're watching national geographic or some sort of a documentary of africa when we think about snakes slithering around and, and eating other snakes but there's something really important i don't want you to miss here now this is not the first time we've seen this miracle remember when god comes to moses at the burning bush And Moses begins to argue, what am I supposed to do? The Lord says, listen, take your staff, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake. The Lord says, now pick it up by the tail. When he does, it becomes a staff again. So we've seen this miracle take place already. When they get into the throne room, the Lord is gonna tell Aaron, listen, throw it on your staff, it's gonna become a snake. I want you to then reach down and pick it up. It's gonna become a staff again. Now, again, a cool story interesting, I'd like to see it in person, so what, right? Well, let's remember, I showed you a picture a couple of weeks ago, and I'm gonna show it to you again, of Pharaoh, so let's pull that picture of Pharaoh up. Now, if you were here, you probably remember this picture. If you knew, it may be new to you, but the Pharaoh oftentimes was depicted as a serpent, Right, And so the hood is the cobra hood. At the very top, you might not can see it from there, but there is a a cobra that's ready to strike on the head of the serpent. And so we would see oftentimes the serpent or the snake worshipped in ancient Egypt. In fact, one scholar said this, serpent worship was particularly strong in the Nile Delta. There the Egyptians built the temple in honor of the snake goddess Wadjet, who represented by hieroglyphics the side of a cobra. So pull that next picture up. This is a picture found in an ancient Egyptian temple of one of the snake gods. So what we begin to understand is snakes to these people were important. They were significant. They worshiped them. Pharaoh took on the picture oftentimes as a snake. And so for the Lord to throw down the staff and it becomes a snake pick it back up to demonstrate his control over it, would have spoken to the people of Egypt. Pharaoh would have noticed this, right? It would have been a strange, fun sort of a trick. It would have been something that would have gotten his attention and he would have understood that who he's dealing with here really means business. I've had the opportunity over the years, and I, and I talk about this often. I've had the opportunity to go and, and do different mission trips with our church. And we've, praise the Lord, traveled all over the world. And I've gone to South Asia, to India especially, multiple times as some of you have. And we're planning even now to get back next year. And there's a lot of interesting things over there. It, it's, a, it's a totally different world on so many different levels. I love going with the Lord's doing there. It's incredible. But one of the interesting things, maybe the most interesting thing I've ever seen there, one of the most interesting, is a snake charmer. And you might think this is just kind of from uh, old school or fairy tales or it never really happened, but it's true. It has happened and it still does. And so if you know where to look, you know where to go. Uh, I'll never forget. We were walking down to the river one day and kind of came around this corner and there was this man with a basket and there's cloth down in the basket and sitting in the basket is a cobra, a very large cobra. I showed this video years ago. I probably should have showed it again. I'll send it to you if you want to see it. Very large cobra and he just takes the top off the basket and there it is. And the cobra's crawling around and he's petting it and literally crawls around his neck and up into his head. It's bizarre to watch. But maybe more bizarre than that is the people that pass by don't see it as some sort of little circus trick. They see it as an opportunity to do worship because they're still worshiping the snake gods over there. It's true. <clears throat> so what you notice is you see them putting money in this basket, reaching down and touching the top of that cobra's head and then doing some sort of a sign of worship. Right. Still, it's always fascinating to me that in the Garden of Eden, the enemy came as a serpent, right? He's disguised himself oftentimes throughout history, but there are still people that worship the serpent. There's still people that worship the enemy, and so the Lord's demonstrating here this picture, this power of exactly who he is, of exactly what he can do. Pull up verse 12, because so, something interesting is going to happen here, right? So, so Moses goes into the room with Pharaoh. They take the staff. They throw it down. It becomes a snake. And the Pharaoh says, listen, man, that's pretty cool. But uh, hey, magicians, sorcerers, otherwise, man, I need you to come over here and I need you to see if you can do the same trick, And so the Bible says these sorcerers, these magicians, they come into the room. And the Bible says in verse 12, each one cast down his staff and they became serpents. So Pharaoh says, listen, Moses, appreciate you, buddy, but look at what I can do as well, right? What you can do, I can do. Better. Now, scholars disagree. Was this some sort of a magic trick? Uh, Was it really the devil at work? That's kind of where I tend to believe the enemy was at work here. The devil was at work here. So they throw down their staffs, not to be outdone. Those become snakes as well. Now, if you just stop there, you'd be like, man, I don't know, Moses. I mean, can, can I come up a little bit more? But you got to show us a little bit more. If you do the same thing that Pharaoh did, it's not nearly as cool. But then we read the second part of that verse. Each man cast down his staff, they became serpents. But watch, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Kind of weird, right? You're like, I don't know if I want to see a snake eating another snake. That's a little bizarre. That's the part on National Geographic when you turn for a couple of minutes, right, and you look back again. Weird. Something for us it just seems kind of strange, like something we watch from Africa video doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. But remember, this is in the context of the people of Egypt. We always have to read Scripture in the context it was written. And for the people of Egypt, there was something else going here. I want you to listen to what one Egypt. Uh, A scientist says what a scholar says about what's taking place here. He said this sign would have been especially impressive to the Egyptians, watch, who believed, listen, that swallowing something was the way to acquire all of its powers. By gobbling up their magic wands, Aaron's staff was not simply destroying their power and authority, but claiming that all their power and authority belonged to to God. right? we miss it. And this is one of the failures sometimes when we read in modern terms, we miss all the little hints, and you really have to spend some time digging in. When you dig in and begin to study and understand, it really comes to life here, because not only are we demonstrating the power over the serpent, which is over the Pharaoh and over the Pharaoh's gods of the Nile Delta, not only are we demonstrating the power that God has over those, but when they try to come back with the same power and their staffs become snakes, The snakes of the Lord eat up the snakes of the Pharaoh, demonstrating absolute power, demonstrating absolute control, demonstrating absolute authority, right? Something that's strange to us, the Pharaoh would not have missed. And so God's demonstrating his power, right? He's showing his glory one step at a time. One moment at a time, one act at a time. So Pharaoh's beginning to get the picture, right? He's beginning to see it, but his heart is still hardened, right? Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? He refuses to let the people go. A theme we're going to see really throughout the plagues over the next few chapters. Verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's out to the waters. He's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you've not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. Verse 18 The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt, watch, did the same by their secret acts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. For they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Here's truth number three. The first plague, water now, is turned into blood. It's the first of ten. God has already said, listen, I'm going to demonstrate my power with a strong arm and an outstretched hand. I'm going to let the people of Egypt understand who they're dealing with. And so he's been kind of ramping up to this. Right, The burning bush, we see his power and his majesty. The first time you throw down the staff and it becomes a snake, pick up the stake, it becomes a staff, right? We've seen his majesty. He goes into the throne room and he does the same thing. Then the snake of Moses and Aaron, the Lord's snake, eats the Pharaoh's snake, right? The Pharaoh still will not listen, and so the Lord says, listen, we're gonna take it another step. We're gonna demonstrate our power to the Egyptians, to the Pharaoh, by turning the Nile River into blood now let's back up a step because i want you to understand what's going on here this is important right the lord says to moses and aaron listen i want you to go out in the morning go down to the river meet pharaoh as he comes to the water you say why why would pharaoh be going to the river early in the morning right our concept of going to river is to fish or to kayak right that's kind of what we do or to swim it's recreational for us not so in the history of egypt When people went down to the river in these times, they did two things. The first thing was to bathe. They didn't have indoor showers. Obviously, what we do, they went down to the river and they would bathe. The second thing they would do is worship. Now, I want to show you uh, another picture. It's a picture of some people that are down in the river. So if we can show that picture, it's a picture that's taken uh, in South Asia. Some of you may have seen this before, but the place we go to is located near a very uh, holy river, very important river. And these people do two things every morning, bright and early. And if you've ever gone, you've seen this. If you want to go with me, I'd love to take you, and I'll get you down there early in the morning for you to see it. Two things they do. The first is bathe. They go down, and literally, they'll have a bar of soap, and they'll just lather up right there in the river. They wash. It's one of the most polluted rivers in the world, by the way. The Ganges River, one of the most polluted rivers in the world. Raw sewage literally pours in about a half a mile upstream. It's true. Bathe in the river. The second thing they do is worship. So every morning, they go down. Now, this is a different religion. We're talking about Egypt. We're talking about something different. But the ideas are the same. It's still happening today. These people come down to the river every morning. They offer some sort of a gift. They offer some sort of a sacrifice. They light a candle. The lady in the yellow in the back's got a candle, it looks like. They'll, they'll take these little candles. Um, um, uh, Candle holders with flowers and a candle. They'll light the candle. They'll set it adrift out in the river. And so there are hundreds of these candles just kind of floating out of there. It's this act of worship, right? It's the same thing that Pharaoh is doing. Pharaoh is going down to the river to bathe, to worship the gods of the Nile. The Lord's going to say, listen, I want you to walk down Moses and Aaron, go out to the river right where Pharaoh is bathing, right where Pharaoh is worshiping, and you hit him where it hurts the Nile River. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember the Nile River is really the lifeblood of Egypt. It gave people their transportation. It gave them food with fish. It gave them an irrigation system to water their crops. It gave them everything. So when the Lord turns the water into blood, he's striking at the very heart of, of exactly who these people are, the very God of the river that, watched Pharaoh at that moment was worshiping. Now I want you to pull up the picture. I've got a kind of a slide here of all the different plagues that we're gonna see over the next several weeks, and I'm not gonna go through them now. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, bulls, hail, locusts, darkness, firstborn, right? The Lord's gonna kind of ratchet this up Right? They're going to get a little bit worse and a little bit worse. But here's the interesting thing. We're going to tie these in as we go over the next few weeks. Every one of these plagues was designed to hit the Pharaoh very hard, but also to defeat one of the Egyptian gods. Right? So there's a God that goes with every one of these plagues, there's a God that the Lord demonstrates every single time he is superior and more powerful than. And so when Pharaoh goes down to the river, Pharaoh goes down to bathe, Pharaoh goes down to, to worship and to demonstrate that he loves this God and is serving the God of the Nile, the Lord says, listen, you go there to him, you meet him where he is, and you let him know that I'm more powerful by turning the river to blood. And just imagine how difficult this would have been for the people of Egypt. Everything about their life came from this river. Everything about the way they ate, their transportation, the, the, the water that they would drink, everything comes from this river. So when this river is turned to blood for a period of time, it changes everything about how the Egyptians live about how they think, about how they act, because everything they did was tied into this river and the gods of this river that they worship. Now, let's fast forward 3,500 years to today. All right, we, we hear these stories, and we see these plagues, and you say, Adam, do you believe these plagues happened 100%? Absolutely. But we see these gods that they worship. And again, we'll talk through these over the next several weeks. We'll look at these in more detail. The snake gods, gods of the river. And we think things like there's a frog god. We're going to look at that next week. We think, how could these people, how could these people worship these silly, false idols like this? How could they worship the god of the Nile? How could they worship a frog god? How could they worship a snake god? That's silly. How could they pour everything about who they were into these gods? And how could, watch, how could they trust these gods with their lives? Why would they give things to these gods and sacrifice for these gods and, and literally live their lives oftentimes for these gods? It's a silly thing to do, but let me read to you how one writer explains it. Now prepare yourself. I'm about to step all over your toes. You Ready? The average American is not very different from an ancient Egyptian. We still worship the same gods, only the names have changed. What we count on, what we work for, what we play at, what we dream about, these are the gods that we worship. And what matters most to most of us is personal prosperity. We depend on our economy every bit as much as the Egyptians depended on theirs. They worship the Nile, we follow the NASDAQ. Just as two different names for the same God. Rather than trusting in God alone, we depend on economic growth, rapid transportation, and pre-packaged foods. Wow. Those Egyptians are so silly. (laughs) How could they trust and believe in false gods? Well, we do the same thing, don't we? The God of, you fill in the blank, money, prosperity, possessions, fame, glory, whatever it might be, sports. We bow at the altars of those gods. Now, here's the question for you today. What false gods in your life Does the Lord need to remove with a strong hand? Because if you're like me, you're like, whoa, 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 back it up now. (laughs) I got this, Lord. Let me handle this, okay? Give me a couple more days. Give me another week. Give me another month, right? And the Lord is patient. Scripture shows that out. But you need to understand, there will come a time. There will come a time when his patience has ended. And just as he demonstrated his power and his glory to the people of Egypt when they were sinful, he will demonstrate his power and his glory to us, to you, to me, if we're sinful as well. And so we kind of come to this place of reckoning. Are we willing to give the Lord the false idols of our lives and trust him with all things? Now we have an invitation We have it every Sunday morning. And we do it for one real simple reason. It's a chance for you to respond. So I'm going to ask you right where you can can pray where you are. You can come down here and pray. I'm always available to talk to you during the invitation or after the service if you want to come and talk for longer. But here's what you need to kind of get straight in your mind right now. Are there idols in your life that you need to give up? Are there idols that are keeping you from trusting in the true and living God? This is your opportunity to deal with that. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise your name for being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We praise your name for your glory and majesty, Lord. We praise your name for what you did in the book of Exodus, demonstrating very slowly but surely your power and your glory and your majesty. Father, we see the false idols of the Egyptians and we laugh. We scoff at them, Father, until we see our own lives. And when we look with honesty at ourselves, Lord. We know we serve false gods as well. So open our eyes to that truth. Demonstrate your glory and your majesty in our lives. Work through us to accomplish great things. Let us trust in you. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.